Dear Heavenly Father, we praise you that you are a God who speaks, that you are a God who has revealed yourself through your word. We thank you for drawing near to us with your commands and promises so that we might partake of the gospel of salvation through our faith in, in you, repentance of our sins, and the discipleship that we receive uh, through your word and through other brothers and sisters. Father, we ask that you would open our hearts and minds to your instruction this morning, that we might be built up and encouraged in our faith, um, and that you would clear our heads now so that we may be able to hear the instruction of your word, uh, both during this hour and, Lord willing, during the next. And we pray these things in your Son's risen name. Amen. Well, good morning, and welcome to our fourth Equipping Hour class of the year. Uh, in this class, we're thinking through the idea of Bible interpretation. And so for the next few months, we are going to be looking at the Word of God from different doctrinal angles. Last week, we looked at God's sufficient um, Last week we looked at God's sufficient word, and next week, Lord willing, we are going to look at God's authoritative word. This morning we're going to contend that God's word is clear. One of our goals in this series of studies is to see from Scripture what to believe about the word of God, what to feel about the word of God, and what to do with the word of God, so that we actually will believe, feel, and do with the word of God what we're called to do. With that quick tethering of our study today, with the studies before, let's dig into God's clear word. And what I'm hoping we're going to do this morning is we're going to be like a teabag. There's lots of stuff we can talk about under this topic, as you can imagine. But we're going to be a teabag and really kind of, kind of go deep on what it means to be clear, why that's important, and to think through that. So how many of us have heard the parable of the six blind men and the elephant? All right, great, this is good. Then we're all going to have different, different interpretations of what it means, because that's kind of the fun of that. <laughs> so let me, let me just review this, uh, this story real quick, and then uh, uh, we'll talk through this. So a group of six blind men uh, heard that a strange animal had been brought into their village, but none of them knew what it was or were able to determine what its shape or its form was. So they decided that each one of them was going to go inspect the animal by trying to touch it and then report back to the others on what they found. So one man finds the animal tr animal's trunk, and touches it and decides it's a thick snake. Another man finds the animal's ear and thinks it's a big fan. Another man finds the animal's leg with his hands and concludes it's just the trunk of a large tree. The fourth man walks into the side of the big animal and with his hand he goes down the animal and declares that it's just a large wall. The fifth man gropes in the darkness and grabs the animal's tail and concludes the animal is like a rope. Finally, the sixth man runs into the tusk which is hard, smooth, and sharp, and declares it to be like a spear. Now, the varied versions of what happens next uh, conveys many different morals that are often brought from the story, but one claims that they all came to absolutely violent blows, accusing each other of lying, that they were all talking about something different, um, and as no one listened to each other, and they all declared that what they said is true. Another version uses the parable to argue that each man has a different view of truth, with each being subjective and equally as valid as each other, uh, even though they all may be somewhat right and somewhat wrong, and partially wrong. And this is where this parable is often used uh, to uh, describe uh, moral relativism. Many different re 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 uh, religions and many different philosophies have tried to use this parable to draw different conclusions. And this story has many fundamental problems with it. But for now, let's just recognize that one thing this parable is for certain missing in all of its basic versions. That's clarity, right? It shows that each of the blind men were missing what things really were. And one, co one could argue that when you're in the presence of an animal as large as an elephant, being clear on what it actually is is probably important, possibly even life or death important, depending on what's going on. But all of this shows us uh, the importance that clarity on a situation or the clarity about something can be very essential. So what is clarity? What's the definition of clarity? What's that? She said being clear. Being clear. That's, yeah. yeah, yeah, no, no, exactly, exactly. That's right. Clarity, right? Um, so it's seeing something clearly, um, seeing something correctly, seeing something fully. Uh, Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines clarity as the quality or state of being clear. That's really helpful, right? Another synonym for clarity is lucidity, which the diction, that same dictionary often defines as clearness of thought. To be lucid or clear is to have the capacity to perceive truth. To see something clearly or with clarity is to see the object or point free from haze, mist, or dust, disguising or shadowing the object or the point. 
You might look at an antonym for clarity, uh, with us, which is opacity. And this means having the quality or state of having veiled or an uncertain meaning. Do you see the contrast? Clarity is not opacity, and something that is opaque is not clear. So now that we've understood the English language definitions of that, let's look at what we mean when we declare God's word is clear. That will obviously take us a little bit more time, but it doesn't make it any less true. So now when some of you hear me say that scripture is clear, some of you might actually think, say, think that I'm crazy. Um, what about all those complicated passages? In some nines, the clarity of the Bible may seem impossible. However, the clarity of scripture is a fundamental doctrine of our faith. If we do not get our understanding correct about this matter, we will not be able to agree on or even really to discuss a number of other core important issues of the faith. So we need to have a very careful definition of what we mean here. And this has been a core matter of both debate and agreement in the church for a very long time. Now, the big theological word historically used to describe the clarity of Scripture is the word perpiscuity, uh, which in many ways is a difficult word to spell and say, let alone understand, without some further inquiry. Perpiscuity, see, I can't even say it right. Perpiscuity means clearness or lucidity as a statement being perspicuous or clear. For the purposes of our study today, we're actually going to use the word clarity for actual clarity of my own tongue twisting and for the ease of our speaking purposes here. Let's look at a few attempts at defining this doctrine across some core confessions of our faith and statement of faith um, about what this means about the clarity of scripture. And let me remain, uh, read from uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith, section one, uh, paragraph seven, defines it this way. All things in scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned in a due use of the ordinary means may attain unto a sufficient understanding of them. Lots of big words. We're going to unpack that a little bit. But the idea is that um, the clarity is not meaning that everything is sort of clear, but that there's enough there that people can basically get the general idea. Article 2 of Delray Baptist Church's actually statement of faith uh, talks about the scriptures, and it has a section in it that also elucidates a little bit of this as well. Let me believe, I'll read that whole paragraph um, there. It says, We believe that the Holy Bible, both Old and New Testaments, was authored by God and through divine inspiration written by men. We affirm that the Bible is totally sufficient and trustworthy, completely free from error in the original manuscripts, and reveals the principles by which God will judge us. It includes within it the only way of salvation and has its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus the Christ. The Bible will remain to the end of the world the supreme standard and final authority by which all matters of life and doctrine should be read. Now let's start by noticing that several important nuances in these attempts at definition. First, some portions of scripture are clearer than others, and not every passage has a simple or an obvious meaning. But the main things we need to know, to believe, and to do can clearly be seen in the Bible. Though the most essential doctrines are not equally clear in every passage, they are all made clear in somewhere else in scripture. That which is necessary for our salvation can be understood even by the uneducated, provided that they make use of the ordinary means of study and of learning. And a final observation is the most important points in the scriptures may not be understood perfectly, but they can most assuredly be understood sufficiently. So in summary, when we say the Bible is clear, we're not saying that the meaning of every verse in the Bible will be patently obvious to everyone. Rather, we are making a more concrete and possibly most important question, and this brings us to the big idea of our class. If we were to summarize what we have just unpacked into one sentence, and normally I like to get it under 11 words, but this is a little more complicated to get under 11 words based on all of that we've already talked about. This is, what, this is the, the premise of what we're going to argue today, and what we're going, I think we're going to be able to see clearly from Scripture. Ordinary people using ordinary means, can accurately know the Bible to believe in and obey God and be faithful Christians. So that's our big idea. That's our, that's our summary statement, all right? Now, while this doctrine may seem to be clear to certain Christians, it's also certainly held in suspicion by others. 
So I want to talk through a couple of the objections, but before we get there, any questions or helpful comments on some of the basics about what we've kind of grounded ourselves around the idea of the clarity of Scripture? For some of you, this may be new. For some of you, this may be re-understanding of various other things, and some of this may be helping tease out some of this. Yes, ma'am. So, the, so lots, there's lots of things in that. So that could be, um, uh, you know, so the idea of being able to reading, being able to seeing, if you're, you know, uh, the means of communication or how you intake thought. So if you're, you're blind, you can't see, you're obviously not going to read in the same way. The means that of grace, common grace that God gives us to understand something. So, yeah, great question. Anything else? Yes, Nick. Just a point of clarification. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're, so you're, you're kind of defining clarity as accuracy specifically regarding like like faith right like believing in god obeying god yes yeah yep exactly yep good yeah and we're going to tease that out a little more as we go through some of the things about because i think there's a lot more in that bucket than i think we often commonly assume as we talk about the attributes of scripture and the attributes of god and how that plays with each other all right, so let's look at some common objections. And what we're going to do at the beginning, I'm going to lay out what the objection is. I'm not going to answer them right now. Then we're going to go to God's word to answer them. And then we're going to come back around and sort of talk through kind of how then to respond to that. All right. <clears throat> so <clears throat> common objections. First is the mystical objection. Now, the mystical objection to scripture being clear is based on the premise that God is so transcendent, so above us, so much more than we can grasp that he cannot be talked about or explained clearly or accurately by mere human words. This argument states that God is so far above us to be truly understood uh, and, and that he's, he's unfathomably mysterious that we can't actually explain what that is. And that it would be arrogant for humans to assume we can meaningfully interpret or understand uh, his word. The results of this, the argument goes, is that we should radically be uncertain about our interpretations of Scripture, and we should recognize that there is nothing, that th- that is nothing, it is nothing more than a feeble attempt to describe the undecipherable mysteries of faith using the imperfections of our human language. This view is often also wrapped up in a sincere form of humility um, in trying to protect God from dangerous attempts at man-made theolo- theologizing and uh, attempts at per- perverting the Bible. So it often comes across as being very humble, being very kind, being very Just recognize God is so good, there's no way we can understand this. This is basically a, a quick summary of the mystical objection. Second objection is what's um, often referred to as the Catholic objection. And the Catholic objection to Scripture being clear is based on the idea that the Bible as a whole is not sufficiently clear in itself and is in some parts incomplete and needs to be Uh, explained and augmented by tradition. If it is not, the argument goes, we are in danger of misunderstanding or misapplying the scriptures, and so we need someone or something to offer an authoritative binding interpretation for us. The Catholic Church argues that the task of giving the true and authentic interpretation of the Word of God has actually been given to the Pope and the bishops of the Church in communion with them, and that that is where we get sort of the clarity of Scripture. Now, I'd say it's important to note that both the Protestants and the Catholics have historically held to the same actual understanding of the doctrines of the inspiration and the inerrancy of Scripture. And this is just a place where they kind of part ways. All right, so they agree that we, we, we agree on the, the being divinely inspired, things we've talked about before, and the inerrancy of Scripture we've talked about in early parts of the class. But, in the, but on the idea of the clarity of Scripture, this is where the two, um, two have historically uh, parted ways. Third objection. The pluralism objection questions the very idea that any human has sufficient grounds to know whether an interpretation is true or not, whether it's right or wrong. They argue that if the Bible is so clear, then why can't Christians agree on what it means? Why are there so many different denominations? People claim to know what the Bible clearly means And yet they argue the church has justified the crusades, has justified slavery, has justified the flat earth all by using the Bible. It's not so much a question of whether a specific interpretation is right or wrong, but rather whether that is even a knowable thing. All right. So these are three sort of very, very, I'm being pretty quick summaries, but these are, there's entire books 
that have been written on these sort of various things, um, some of which are very interesting to see what people actually kind of believe. And you know, if you're not, not tethering yourself to actual scripture, it's like, that actually makes rational sense. But it's not, you know, not based on sort of what we know. So, so that's, that, that's, where, that's where the three general objections are, all right? What does the Bible say about its own clarity? Um, how do we assess the, 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 the validity of these objections? Um, and how do we even kind of validate our big idea? So what we're going to do is we're going to examine uh, the scriptures and draw out some lessons and implications. And these will help us to think through these objections and also help us to build the, 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 the body of what we've, what we've argued is the doctrine of clarity. And let's start by looking uh, at the passages that's at the top of your, your handout. Um, Deuteronomy um, chapter 30. We're going to specifically, our, our lesson here is on, on 11 through 14, but I'd like us to read Deuteronomy 11 through 20. Could someone read that for us? 11 through 14 is on the thing. You'll have to, yeah. Chapter 30, verses 11? Yeah, verses 11 through 20. Yes, thanks. Thanks, Lord. Who has that for us? 11 through 30? Yes, 11 through 20, sorry. 11 through 20. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it. But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good death and evil, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God, by walking in his ways, and by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away, and you will not hear, but are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. Great, thank you. So now for a passage that's supposed to help us see the simplicity and the accessibility of God's word, this, there's a lot in this, this passage. Um, so let's, let's kind of unpack this and decipher this a little bit together, because I think it, it'll demonstrate uh, this principle, but in the context of God's entire word. So first of all, as we sit here in, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, we need to understand where we are in the life of Moses. So if you flip back through um, some of the, the pages of the earlier part of the, the, the book and go all the way back to um, go all the way back to chapter one real quick, um, you see something. Oh, okay. That was not in Deuteronomy, but. To remember to plug it in before we go back. Well, let's go. We get a preview. That's good. <laughs> all right. All right. Wonderful. Thank you, Greg. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Everyone awake? Moses. Excellent. Okay. Yes, Moses. All right. So ba back to, uh, to De Deuteronomy 1. What you have to understand, and so in, um, um, 
if you uh, flip back, so De- Deuteronomy actually starts at the second giving of the law. Uh, just as the Israelites were about to enter into the promised land, Deuteronomy is one, uh, chapter 1 through verse 8, it talks about kind of uh, this beginning. But chapters 1 through 30 is actually one long sermon and covenant renewal ceremony spoken by the Lord through the mouth of Moses. Uh, if you, again, if you go back to uh, Deuteronomy 1 and look at, see at verse 1, it actually says, These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel. And Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness. And then if you move down to verse 3, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had given him in commandment to them. The next 29 chapters are loaded with the words, the Lord our God said to us, the Lord spoke, the Lord said, and so on and so on. God is clearly speaking through the mouth of Moses in this. So he had this entire sort of um, long sermon, by the way, I argue it's not, not, you know, it's even longer than some we have here. And it's a long sermon, 30 chapters, but relitigating an entire sort of the history of the truth of what God has taught them, the discussions, even interactions between Moses. I, I pleaded with this and God responded. God listened here. God didn't listen here. But, but God was faithful to him. So laying all that out. And then you get to um, chapter 29, uh, or get to chapter 30, where we are here. And if you just quick look ahead real quick to the last four verses of this book, chapter 31 describes the selection of Joshua to succeed Moses. Chapter 32 records the song of Moses. Chapter 33 is the final, the final blessing of Moses. And then chapter 34 records the death of Moses. So our passage in Deuteronomy 30 here sits at the end of the sermon in the transition to the next stage of events for Moses and the entire nation of Israel. And if we look even closer at the first part of these verses of, verse, uh, verse, um, thir- of chapter 30, um, we can see that this is actually the closing argument of Moses' sermon. All right? So Moses is exhorting the people to choose life instead of death, as Nick has just read it, life instead of death by keeping the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. That's the verses 15 through 20. And that's Moses' sermon sort of climax and the leave-behind point that he wants this entire book all up into this point where he wants them, them to take away. However, in order to make this charge actually effective, Moses must show that he's not asking the people to do what's impossible. So just before this verse, in our, in our, in our main passage, in verses, in, in, um, in verses 11 through 14, he declares that God's word is not beyond them. In short, that the commandments are accessible to them, they can know them, and they can keep them. Now, if we just left it there, does anyone sense a problem with that statement? They can know them and they can keep them. Can any of you know? Them? Correct. Exactly. Yes. Now this leads to a second thing about our passage. If Moses says in verse 11 that the commandment is not too hard for you, and in verse 14 that you can do it, how does that square with the Apostle Paul's declaration that we are unable to keep the law and there's no one righteous, no, not one? Wasn't that the law given to us to show that we could not keep it and something that, that needed more according to Galatians chapter 3? Yes, but that is the true about the law as a means of our own deliverance. Moses here is not talking about law keeping as self-justification. He is speaking to a people already saved from Egypt, right? He's speaking to a people already graciously set free, already delivered apart from the law keeping. He's exhorting them to live as God's chosen, redeemed, and free people. Moses here in our passage is seeking to reassure them that the word of God can be understood and obeyed, not perfectly and not meritoriously, but in a way that pleases God who has already graciously saved them. What Moses is saying here is simply to do what Jesus actually tells his disciples to do in Matthew 28, 20, when he tells them to, in the Great Commission to obey everything that he commanded them. And also what, uh, what John says when he writes in 1 John 5, 3, that this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Matthew Henry t- says of these verses that the Israelites could never plead an excuse for their disobedience because God had not given them something which was unintelligible or impractical or impossible to be known or done. The picture of the word of God in Deuteronomy chapter 30 Hold on a second. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, um, verses 11 through 14, um, can be comprehended completely and clearly. 
Verse 12 tells us that you don't have to go to heaven to get God's word. We don't have to go to an ocean to find it, according to verse 13. God's word is accessible and understandable. And what God wanted from his people was not hidden far off in the sky, was not in the sea. Calvin says it actually quite well when he says that God does not give us obscure enigmas, you know, controversies, things to figure out, um, to keep our minds in suspense or to torment us with difficulties, but teaches familiarly whatever is necessary according to the capacity and consequently the ignorance of people. Does that make sense? So the law can be on our lips. Deuteronomy 6, 7 says it can actually be taught to our children. It says, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. That's why we don't just do babysitting here during the services. We actually, during a coping hour with the children, we actually teach them the things of scripture because they can know that, right? God's revealed world also does not require searching out or solving the mysteries of the universe to understand. Look again at Deuteronomy uh, chapter 29, verse 28. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and our children forever that we may do all the words of the law. So the word of God is not far. It's right in front of us and it can be understood and it can be obeyed. So there's the book of Deuteronomy tells us what they teach about the clarity of scripture. But any questions on that? And then we're going to see that the book of Deuteronomy is not alone. Any questions, comments there? All right, so let's look at first at the Old Testament. Can someone look up, uh, I'm going to do three verses, Psalm 119, 105. I need Psalm 119, 130. And I need Psalm 19, verses 7 and 8. Who has Psalm 119, 105? Thank you. Great. So the word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path so that we know, actually know what we're supposed to go, where we're supposed to do. It's shining, it's redeeming, it's revealing to us, right? Psalm 119, 130. Who has that? Thank you. The unfolding of your word gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. Okay. So it, again, provides light. It provides understanding. And it doesn't, you don't have to be a, a professor of theology to know what it is, right? Psalm 19, 7 through 8. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Okay. Notice the, con the, the, the kindness of the, of the psalmist. Just not say it's wise, it, there's a, but that actually it enlightens the eyes, meaning it's not just you just read, read it and you get something from it. You learn something from it. it it's, it's revealing itself to us, right? So the law makes wise the simple. Again, you don't have to be, you don't have to be really, uh, really know a lot to sort of understand what the scriptures are. It's revealing to itself and it, it, it's enlightening. It's, it's adding sort of understanding to you. And if you read, the longer you read the scripture, I read scriptures all the time where I like, I've read the scripture, I've memorized it and then I read it again. Like, hey, I, I, I saw something else. I learned something else in this, right? It's constantly revealing ourselves to us. Very things. So it can be clear. So um, since we know in other parts of scripture that God is light, like in 1 John 1, 5, we would expect his word to also be clear and bright. After all, God communicates to reveal, not to obscure. In uh, 2 Kings 22 and 23, uh, the story of Josiah, the king, we see that the book of law was literally was rediscovered uh, by the people in Josiah's day. If any of you may remember this, the story, we don't have enough time after our musical interlude to, interlude to get into that, but um, <laughs> chapters 22 and 23, um, that the people, they, they hadn't heard from, about it for a long time. They actually heard it again, they read it, they understood it, and they knew what they were to do. The meaning of the text was not lost in them, even though the entire passage in the law had been lost for years. It reminds me, what point would it be if, uh, would there be in speaking threats and promises to a hurting, scared, lawless, desperate people, unless it was assumed that all those threats and promises could be understood, or at least enough of them for people to respond in faith and repentance? So Kevin DeYoung sort of writes about the ideas that it would, make, it would make no rational sense even to the simplest about if he asked you to do something you couldn't do. It's like a parent telling a child, uh, why won't you drive the car? And they're only four years old. Like, you just can't do that, right? 
So the, the, what, what sent that wouldn't make any sense? Because he wouldn't be able to get anything out of us. He wouldn't even be able to, because uh, you would be able to accuse somebody of doing something they couldn't do, right? So the presence of the prophets, even in the Old Testament, what some theologians actually call God's covenant attorneys, right? I mean, they're the ones that are arguing, this is what it says, this is what it doesn't say. Okay, the presence of the prophets only makes sense on the assumption that they had a right to press home the points of the law that the people should have known and followed, but were not. So here's, here's a key point. The entire Old Testament assumes that holy words and holy texts are adequate vehicles for the transmission of God's intentions and desires. The premise of the entire Old Testament. And we know this again from another part in the Old Testament because the Bible speaks about itself. Nehemiah, in Nehemiah 8.8, 8, uh, tells Ezra and the priests to read from the book, from the law of God clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. Note that the people understood not just Ezra and the priest interpretation of the book of the law, but the very meaning of God's word. It is, it is accessible. It is tangible. The Old Testament clearly teaches and assumes the clarity of scriptures. Any questions on that? Then we're going to look at the New Testament. Laura. Yeah. Yeah, the, 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 the ascent, the, again, the, the, the premise is the essentials of Scripture of knowing what you need to know to, 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 to believe in God, to turn from your, your sin and faith and repentance, and to trust Him and to follow Him. That, that can be clearly known to anyone of any, of any age, national, re, re, religion, background, you know, accessibility to various things through the Word of God. Um, but that doesn't mean that you're all going to have that, you know, we're all going to understand the exact sort of natures of, you know, all subdivisions of, of what it's thinking about that, although I think the Trinity is quite obvious as well, but the different sort of theological sort of various things about understanding the, th the different ideas of criticism and what this falls into. You're not, everyone's not going to understand all that things, but that's also not necessary. So the doctrine of clarity of scripture has more to do with like, what's necessary for salvation Correct. than it does with like, knowing who God was. Correct. Yes. Yes. What's necessary for what, yeah? What's necessary for a salvation and and, and and obedience and growth and discipleship? Yep. And different degrees of that will will come. Now that also doesn't mean that there's a whole bunch of new stuff that we've never thought about in scripture, which we're going to get to that as well. Which you know, John Piper says, if somebody declares something completely new, after several hundred years of various, you probably should quadruple check that. So okay, um, okay. Let's let's go to the New Testament. Good question. And that's exactly the clarity of this point that I'm trying to get about the clarity of Scripture or perspicuity or however we say that word. All right. So the same approach to Scripture um, uh, from the Old Testament was actually shared by Jesus and the apostles and is evidenced in the New Testament. Dozens of times Jesus appealed to a text from the Old Testament thinking that such an appeal would settle the matter in question. And you all can have different sort of things come to mind about where he said various things. And this seemed to indicate that Jesus himself believed not only that the Old Testament was authoritative, but that also that it had a fixed meaning, which people, not just the God, who, uh, uh, the God of the universe, could understand what it meant, right? And they could grasp it and know how to apply it. Jesus often referred to the scriptures as evidence for the truth of his own teaching. Matthew chapter 21, verses 42 through 44, um, he, you know, Jesus in the parable of the tenants talks about have you never read in the scriptures this, right? Um, Mark 10, verses 4 through 9, when he was teaching where the, uh, on divorce, he talks about where the Pharisees misunderstood the law and the commandments. And almost, doesn't, almost like he's, he's exasperated, like, do you not see? This is, this is, this is hard. Like, you know, that, that's like, like certain things that just should have been self If you knew the law, you knew the various things, this is where it is. John 10, um, verses 34 and 35, when Jesus was teaching on who God his father was, he said, it is not written in your law, but I said, you are gods. You know, so not only to sort of say what it says, but to say what the, the, you're misinterpreting the law. It actually says this. And it's not like saying it doesn't mean, the law doesn't mean. He said, it is not written that you are gods. So just the, this idea that Jesus himself used this in his teaching. Other times he actually chided the Jewish establishment for not conforming to the word of God, which he knew they were aware of. 
Matthew chapter 21, 13 says, he said to them, you remember when he's clearing the temple? It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it as a den of robbers. Mark 7 uh, and 16, again, Jesus is in a, a back and forth uh, dialogue. I wouldn't say it's a debate because it's kind of unfair when you're debating the author of the law. I know people often refer to it as a debate, but I don't know. It's, a, um, it, it's like it's an author would know what he wrote and you're arguing about what he meant when he wrote it, you know, various things. So um, Jesus discussing the traditions and commandments of the Pharisees. This is why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders? Which, of course, is what they say. They're holding the traditions. They're doing the interpretations. You know, what, and Jesus arguing with them about that. Um, this is one of my favorites. Um, when uh, in Matthew ch- uh, chapter 9, verses 13, when um, the, the Pharisees were suggesting that, um, uh, that he's you know, committing a scandal, right, by eating with tax collectors and sinners. And so he's pushing back on them about saying they should have understood that they're misapplying the verse from Hosea, that they keep various other things. And he actually says to them, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, which is the whole point of uh, Hosea's writings in this point. So it's just the idea of sort of himself, but like these are things that should be self-evident to you. So if Jesus is using it in this particular way, it's, it's very, 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 very reasonable and I think consistent with scripture to think that this is also one of those things. Six times throughout the gospels, um, Jesus says, uses the words, have you not read? He's not talking about the newspaper. He's not talking about the internet blog. He's talking about the law, right? So he's suggesting here that if his opponents had known the scriptures better, they would not be making the mistake that they were making. Jesus approached God's revelation as if it could be known and understood. The apostles did the same, quoting from scriptures numerous times, reasoning from them, alluding to them, and finding the fulfillment in them with the assumption that these texts had a correct meaning, and that the apostles actually could be in possession of it to then teach it and instruct it in, in, their, in their writings and in their, in their teachings, right? So Jesus, the apostles, and the New Testament all teach and assume the clarity of the scriptures. Okay, so we all agreed amongst ourselves on this. But is this really something we need to fight about with others about as important? I would actually contend, and I think all the study that sort of done this through lots of different things, and there's a number of um, books I put on the back of your handout that have helped me think through this. Um, from a lot of people that are a lot smarter and a lot more degrees than I do, um, that believe that this doctrine of the scripture uh, is actually a very important biblical principle. The challenges uh, may often seem small and humble and that you could even give some grace and the idea, oh, they can have a different understanding of these things. But some of these things, you should still give grace in your conversations with them, but some of these things are fundamental to certain things that are important for us um, as Christians as we seek to look out. And if we lose the attribute of this attribute of scripture, that seems to be so plainly taught, if not in some instances just assumed in the pages of the Bible, we lose some of the most precious and hard-fought truths that the church um, must have in order to continue to, to grow and to flourish uh, potentially in the ways that, um, that God would have it. God will always grow his church, regardless of what happens in these arguments and debates, but this is an important point. And so there's a lot more at stake with this doctrine than I think it, it intuitively sort of seems at first. And let's just quickly, um, uh, in our last few minutes, kind of, kind of go through these and respond to some of these objections. So uh, the first there, and it got these itemized on your, um, on your handout, but the gift of human language uh, is at stake here. So it can sound humble to say that God can't be put in a box or that to divide God and human language because if we did, he wouldn't be God anymore because we couldn't accurately, efficiently describe him. Um, that scripture simply gives us one inspired uh, record of human beings trying to describe the mysteries that are beyond mere human words and language. Declare it can even be said to sound nice. It can sound Christ-like, Christian, humble, right? However, this statement contains so many bad assumptions that it actually makes it very dangerous. So here's some of the assumptions. See if you agree with these. If God cannot be described with words exhaustively, then how can he be described at all truthfully? If scripture is not God revealing himself to us, but the record of human beings trying to understand God, why do we study it? If human language is so irredeemably flawed, inaccurate, and impotent as to render it an unusable means of communications, why do we use it for anything that's important? Each of these assumptions is very wrong, right? Just because God cannot be known, and I obviously, I added the the extras at the end, but you get the point. Even if these basic assumptions are wrong, just because God cannot be known exhaustively does does not mean that he cannot be known at all. 
Theologians for centuries have long been careful to distinguish between the knowledge which, of, of which God has of himself and the knowledge which we by ver- have of him by virtue of his self-revelation to us. He knows a lot more about himself than, than, I, than, than we do, than we're ever going to do. So to declare we have to have that knowledge of himself in order for it to be true to have everything, would, that, that doesn't make any sense, right? Also, there's no place in the Bible where Jesus or the apostles ever treated the Old Testament as mere human reflections on the divine. In fact, it is referred to as the voice of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 4, verses 25, and in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 7. And obviously the most famous verse about scripture, it's God's own breath in 2 Timothy 3.16, right? Also, human language, however imperfect and imprecise, is best seen as a divine gift, okay? In fact, God is the first one in the universe to actually speak. His very speech called the universe into being, according to Hebrews 11, chapter 3. And after doing this, he spoke to Adam. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden. He spoke to them with words, expecting his image bearer to understand what he communicated and to obey what he said. So interestingly, who was the first to challenge the clarity of God's verbal revelation? Exactly. Okay. According to Genesis 3.1, it was the serpent challenging whether God has really spoken with Adam, has he really spoken what Adam and Eve heard him say. God is the divine speaker, to, uh, the ascendant to, or the first part of all human speaking. Before any human spoke, he spoke, right? The facility of speaking a language is part of the gift that God gives us of himself. It is one thing to suggest that God cannot be known absolutely or contained in any verbal system, and it is appropriate to admit that language can be used deceitfully and is subject to ambiguity. But if we are created in the image of God, then it stands to reason that we are a fit conversation partners for the God who began the universe by speaking. Human language is a divinely created means whereby God from the very beginning intended to make himself in his ways known. Second, the gift of human freedom is also at stake. The Protestant doctrine of the clarity of scripture is one of the fundamental foundations for religious liberty in the West. Implicit in the affirmation of this doctrine is the recognition that individuals have the responsibility and the ability to interpret scripture for themselves while in part of a community and with attention to certain history, tradition, and scholarship. But at its core, this doctrine means that I should not be forced to go against my conscience. Only Jesus Christ, speaking through the word, is the Lord of the conscience. Now let's recognize that the same mostly Protestant, most Protestant, actually most Protestant of doctrines has opened a door to all sorts of problems, right? Um, Factions, eccentric interpretations, rampant individualism, and a whole lot more. But despite these dangers, the freedom that clarity protects is worth the cost. As one theologian has written, the denial of the clarity of scriptures carries with it the subjection, right? The subservience of the layperson to the priest or a person's conscience to the church. The freedom of religion and human conscience of the church and theology stands and falls with the clarity of scripture. It alone is able to maintain the freedom of the Christian. It is the orator, origin and the guarantee of religious liberty, as well as many of our basic political freedoms. This doctrine can be and has been abused. However, the raft of bad interpretations and the sometimes free-for-all of some sectors of Protestantism is still worth the price of reading the Bible for ourselves according to our God-given and imperfect consciences Freedom of religious inquiry and expression would not be possible without confidence in the clarity of the scripture. Again, this has to be done in community and within the context of the scriptures, but this is a very important aspect for the idea um, of this aspect of our human freedom. Third, let's think back to the story at the beginning that we uh, talked about of the six blind men and the elephant. Those of you who remember that, those of you who weren't here, you probably heard of the six blind men and the elephant. This happened before the musical interlude, by the way. Um, None of the men really knew what they were feeling, right? None of them declared, this is an elephant, right? So what was the point? And what does it actually have to do with our study today other than me telling an interesting story that we've probably all heard variations of? In one sense, everybody is a blind man or woman when it comes to God. We know a part of him, but we don't really know who he is. No one may be more right than anyone else, and we're all just grasping in the dark, assuming maybe that we may know more than what we do, or, or, or assuming we don't know as much as we actually do know. 
However, there are two problems with the, the analogy as that applies from the story to, to what we're talking about today. First, the, the story, the whole, the whole story has major problems, if you've ever sort of looked at it. There's lots of people, philosophers have declared this to be harmful, a harmful story, actually. But one of the things is the whole story is told from the vantage point of someone who clearly knows that it's an elephant. Right? Otherwise, the story doesn't make any sense, right? So um, in order for the story to make its point, the, story, the storyteller must have an accurate and clear knowledge of the elephant. Right, because you're saying he referred to his his, his tail as this, well, not a tail. He thinks it's a, a rope. You know, that there he says, right? Second, and this is perhaps an even more serious problem. The story is a really good description of how humans cannot really understand the divine, in that we are blind and unable to know God on our own or on our own devices. But how would it impact the story and its message if, in fact, the elephant spoke to the men? paradigm shifting for the entire story, right? What if the blind man grabbed the elephant's trunk and all of a sudden the elephant turned around and told him and said that it was, a, that it was, um, uh, excuse me, yeah, grabbed his trunk and the elephant said that, told him that's not a tree trunk, that's my leg, right? How would that change the ability of the blind men to have clarity on what they were really touching or feeling? This given clarity would, would shatter the entire sort of parable and it would reveal very much to us about who, who it was, right? This is what God's done for us in his word. That is what we have um, in its provision and the accessibility of it to us. We must not be separated to separate our epistemology, that theological word, which basically means what we know and how we can know it from the rest of our, from our, our theology, right? This all has to do with what we really believe is actually the character of God. Okay, is God wise enough to make himself known? Yes. Yes, right? Is he good enough to make himself accessible? Yes, right? Is he gracious enough to communicate in ways that are understandable to the meek and lowly? Yes. yes. There's all these things about, his, about, 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 his, uh, about his, uh, his character, right? Does God give us commands that we, don't un that we can't understand? Does he reveal himself in ways that raise more questions than answers? No. That wouldn't be consistent with his, with his character, right? The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture is important because what God is actually like is at stake in how we think about this. <coughs> Finally, with this doctrine, whom God is for is at stake. The doctrine of the clarity of Scripture insists that even the simplest disciple can understand God's word and can be saved. If we have this doctrine, we have to ask ourselves some serious questions. Is the Bible only for pastors and priests? Can average people be trusted with the sacred scriptures? A lot of people have died on that principle, right? Do you need to be a scholar to really understand God's word? No. Do you need a working knowledge of Greek and Hebrew or of Second Temple Judaism? I'm not even sure what that is. Or, uh, or it's Kevin DeYoung's question, or of an ancient Near Eastern religions or of Greco-Roman customs and of the many schools of criticism? Absolutely not. Those can be helpful. They can help us, but you don't need to know those things to know the basic things of scripture, right? So in short, is God a God for just the smarty pants? in society? No, as Paul would say, by no means, right? He's not. The clarity of scripture is at various things. R.C. Sproul summarizes it this way. What kind of a God would reveal his love and redemption in terms so technical and concepts so profound that only an elite core of professional scholars could understand them? That would not be the God of the scriptures. So what God is for is at stake with this doctrine. Any questions or comments on this? Yes? Yeah. I just have one question about relating this discussion to how spiritual, well, essentially 1 Corinthians chapter 2 says the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, mm -hmm. for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Mm -hmm. you just like draw a yeah. line or show the parallel yeah. how do these two things mesh that like yeah. those who don't have Christ or don't have the spirit can't understand in some sense what's the sense yeah, no, no, it's a great, great, great question. So, so the, 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 the idea of the spiritually, spiritually discernible versus sort of sense. What we're, we're arguing here is that the, God, the clarity of God and what you're called to, is it, this is accessible. It's accessible. Accessible to everyone, believer and unbeliever alike. Now, we know some hear it and don't, don't take it, right? 
don't listen, don't follow, don't, are not persuaded to it. Gets into the, 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 the providence of God and determine who he's called and who he's not, right? And so in that sense, what, what Paul's talking about there is more of the idea of they, they get it, but they, they don't spiritually sort of discern it. And remember, with the, with there's lots of people, lots of Christians that are still, you know, Paul's all their exhortation about uh, eating milk of the scripture and eating meat of the scripture. There are, we're at different stages in our discipleship through our lives where we may be eating more milk, more meat, more raw meat, more various sort of things, depending on what it is. And in that instance, is, that's the idea that, remember, there's, there's only two kinds of people in the entire history of the universe. What are they? You're murmuring it. What is it? Yeah, those who believe and those who don't. Right? That's it. Doesn't matter what language or what nationality, where you live, how old you are. There's only two kinds of people of everything. Right? So in that sense, as he's talking about, there are some they they they, they would they would know what they are. They they'd be able to access it. We know from Romans one, all of creation knows who God is. Right? So we know that's the case. So so in this instance, that would be digging in a little bit more into the idea of well, what that is and why, and what 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 Paul's talking about there. But Again, this is meaning it, it, everyone's accessible. So no one is without excuse of doing various things. And we don't have to feel like, oh, I don't know all the answers to all my questions, so I can't. I, I, I you know, haven't got everything answered. I would contend that a lot of things we do every day, like I do not know, I don't understand the concept of why gravity, some of you have heard me say this before, why gravity makes my feet touch the floor every morning, yet I do it. I get out of bed and I step on the floor and I, I, it happens, but I do it, right? We have faith in things we don't have full, accurate understanding, but we have enough faith to know this is what I'm called to. Great question. So you could say the yeah. Bible does not lack clarity to be understood, but when we refuse to believe that the lack is in us. Yeah, it's, it's but, person, yeah, right? yeah, 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 absolutely. Yes? I'm wondering if you could elaborate, you mentioned very briefly um, along the way um, that understood in community, but uh, yeah. one thing that seems yeah. to come up recurringly in kind of these conversations about how we understand scripture is and there's kind of a lone ranger approach to scripture. Uh-huh. Like, you know, the rugged individualism. Yes. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And yet there's a place for, for the church. And yeah. it's a wonder to be Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Look, I think the, I think the New Testament church about the idea that um, the, you know we went through obviously the series of Acts and lots of things of brothers, you know, believers kind of gathering together and uh, you know going through contending sort of what these things means and how to apply the various things. It's the idea of if you have an idea or you have a thing, I I view it to be this and it applies to me. And that if you're doing that in your own self to that individual things, yes, you yourself have to stand before God. You know, we don't stand with our church. You know, again, there's other Protestant denominations that are the covenant theology of our families. Kind of the, that I don't think that's really what's taught here. But but in this instance, we stand. We have an individual relationship with our with our Savior as our Maker and as our Redeemer. That we have to give an account for what we are, how we live and act in that. Um, we call it the live and walk this 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 world in the nevertheless until we get to that sort of place to live together and figure out that requires us to have people around us that are prodding and kind of, that's why we don't live in this very thing. So living in community, meaning my conscience doesn't dict the idea that I can drive whatever, whatever, whatever speed I want on any road or various things because in my conscience, I'm comfortable with it or I'm not comfortable with it. Right? So it's the same kind of concept but the idea of why would we treat something as such much more vastly important uh, and not live in community or in tradition. There are values in traditions. I would argue for civil society, uh, for the unbeliever and the other, there are values in those things, but they're not, they're not inerrant like this is, but they help to guide us from error. And so in that sense, it's various things, but that doesn't mean that everything that's happened before has been right. So um, yeah, so that's why the idea is you can't, you're not going to be doing a good job for your own discipleship or for those around you if you only think about this soul and how it applies to various things. Yes, you're going to be an account for the soul, but you're not necessarily, you're, you're not, we also call them an account to, to share with others. The Romans 1, Philemon, number of sort of passages talk about how we interact with each other and how we affect others' abilities to live and serve Christ by how we interact with them and how they interact with us, that we're better because of that. That clearly seems to be, there's a biblical community that's very clear in the New Testament. Dan. Do you have a minute? Could you talk a little bit about the response to the pluralism objection? I feel like the four things you just went through kind of responded Fairly directed to the mystical Yep. Just kind of gets to being in community a little bit as well. But yeah, what what is the reason for so many factions if the scripture is clear? And like, what's the best response to that? Well, I think in, in those examples of various things, I think people, you know, again, to, it's back to sort of your point about the idea of looking at scripture collectively and determining um, things culturally or various things of where there, where there are discernible differences. Um, we have different denominations, obviously, because of some things within things that are core, and we believe in sort of scriptures, and some things that aren't. Some of those are historical. Some of those are um, uh, come from uh, uh, nationalist traditional traditions and various things about where things are. Um, but how it's applied in the pluralism about God couldn't be for this. 
sometimes we, we overspeak, I think, about what God could be for, or the idea of realizing the means and the ends often get kind of confused. So whether it's crusades, the idea was the church is called to literally uh, you know, rid the Middle East of, of Islam. I'm not sure by, by the sword was the way that God called it to it. I don't, see, I don't see any mention directly of Islam specifically, but of heresies and various things. So it's just that idea. I think the pluralism thing is, again, by being in, and there's different degrees of this, and we can sort of dig into different sort of scenarios, but the idea of being in community about letting this be the center, that's why sola scriptura is so important. Um, and the whole score of scriptura, the idea of let the, letting the whole word, you know, word speak for itself. So I think that's... Um, it's one of the answers to that, but there's a, there's a lot of ways and the specifics of how to how to get into the implications of that that we can we can we can think through any of that together. So, yeah, it, no, but it's it's a good one, and and one again that's the third one. It's the most recent one that's still pretty tangible. Many people aren't running around on the, uh, the Catholic thing known the mystical. It's kind of out there. People would think people are kind of weird when they don't think that way, but that one's more tangible. I think the average person. Lord, my last question, and then we'll close so we don't kill the nursery workers. Can be the less clear. I think that there, there, there's no there's no magical. This is where the clarity stops, right? Um, so it, it, it depends on where things like. And then that I think there's clarity around baptism is what what believers are called to be. Although I would argue that the difference between Presbyterians and, and, and Baptists is literally an argument about what believers' baptism is and isn't. Right. That's in essence the, the one of the core differences there. Right. So so there's more to it. But baptism may you know depending on how you believe in baptism that may or may not fall into what is needed to be known to be redeemed. What is needed to be known to know who God is. What is needed to be known to how, how to call. It. Those things are clear. Right. And that's why we work these things out together through the Scripture, through fear and trembling of understanding what it is. So, right. Last question. Hi. Uh, so. Uh, um, Told you this is going to be a really easy topic. Go. Yeah. So, so it seems like. Uh, absolutely. It's, 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 and this is kind of, it's pretty encouraging for us as we're in our sanctification, knowing that, look, I don't understand this, but what needs to be revealed to me may or may not be revealed, but essentially what needs to be understood I, is in Scripture. I can yeah. read it, talk to my brother and sister about it. Mm -hmm. You know, it's pretty clear. Uh, so to, to play advocate, some people may say, like, that's, that's a presuppositional argument. You're presupposing mm -hmm. that what you're reading is good. Mm -hmm. Like, how would you respond to, to an objection like that. Yeah, so the, the idea, the, the reading is clarified. Who, who's, doing the, who's doing the speaking? You know, it's the idea, you, every authoritative source that you listen to in, the human, in human nature about you, you, you validate the source of who's, who's speaking to you, about whether it's true or not, whether it's clear or not. If we believe that God actually spoke his word, it is God-breathed, and you believe the true nature and attributes of God, I think going back to the first part you said, that absolutely could give us that. If you're a Christian and you are trying to determine whether something is clear or whether something is true based on whether you agree with it or you understand it, brother, sister, I would say that you, you need to stop trying to be God. That's what makes it, that's the huge difference. Right? So God is speaking this. God is speaking. And that should give us confidence. And I don't understand everything in these scriptures, but I know they're true. I trust them. My entire life rests on these, right? So if we're trying to say, well, I don't really know if that's right. I mean, you can argue about certain applications and certain various things, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's truth. It's truth that doesn't determine. If God said it here, and it's like that, I, I don't get to decide whether it's true. Because I'm not sitting on the throne. I'm not sitting at the right hand of God. All right. We are a couple minutes over. I have a great quote from William Tyndale, but I'm going to defer. But I'm happy to share with you afterwards on it. But let's... Um, let's, let's uh, Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for um, your church. We thank you that you at Delray did not call us to live um, uh, by ourselves in a place where we're not around other brothers and sisters. We thank you for giving us your word in, 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 in the language we can speak and understand. 
Uh, we thank you for um, giving us uh, the truths of it. And Father, we ask that we would not uh, just be um, uh, hearers of your word. Although, Father, we do ask that you would open our ears to hear what you're teaching us. That you open our ears to various things that we would be able to turn from hearing this and, and apply this in a way that would make us uh, better disciples of you, able to be better used by you to bring about uh, your glory and uh, to expand your kingdom. Father, we now ask that, uh, that we would particularly be um, with Garrett as he uh, uh, teaches us through Exodus. And we continue to hear your, literally your law and your commands as you've spoken them to Moses, that we'd understand these are true. This is the word of God and it is clear to us. And may we apply those uh, to what you've called us to. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.